Well, I, I wonder, how do you react when someone tells you what to do? Hmm. Probably depends on who is, uh, that someone is and what that someone and what, sorry, you are being told to do. Take out the garbage. Now, if it's my kid whose job it is to take out the garbage, you know, it would be a different response than my wife who's reminding me it's garbage day and yes, it's my responsibility. Get up and get ready for church. Well, could be a, a younger sibling and we might not take that quite as well. It could be a parent, not again. Maybe it's even the pastor because you're in the same house with them there. Pull over. Hmm. Could be a person with road rage and you're thinking, no. Could be a, a police officer and you're thinking, oh no. Could be a person in distress. Come over for lunch. Probably doesn't matter who's asking you that. It's, uh, you know, if it's something you want to do, you know, if it's something I want to do, I don't, I don't care, you know, how little or how much authority they have. But if it's something that I don't want to do or that I don't want to stop doing, then I might resent or resist being told what to do. Who are you to tell me what to do? You can't make me. You're not the boss of me. So how do you react when God tells you what to do? Respond positively? Negatively? Selectively? Ignoring the claims you don't like? Well, as the most powerful man in the world, the king of Egypt was used to giving orders, not taking them. No one told him what to do. But then Moses and Aaron showed up with what they claimed was a message from God. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. To which Pharaoh replied, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. In other words, why should I listen to you? Who are you to try to tell me what to do? I'm the God who gives the orders around here. We live in a time and culture where there is, I think, a little or big pharaoh in each of us that resists taking orders from anyone, especially orders we disagree with or don't like. After all, freedom in our age is freedom from all external authority. Like Pharaoh, we may be able to get along, get by with ignoring and resisting God's orders for a while and think that we can just keep on carrying on with business as usual. I think if someone had asked Pharaoh, so how's that working for you? I'm sure he would have given a glowing testimony of how he showed the God of the Israelites who's boss in Egypt. But that's only because he didn't yet know who he was dealing with. And that God couldn't and wouldn't be so quickly and easily dismissed. I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 8. 
Exodus chapter, sorry, Exodus chapter 7. And if you would like, uh, need a Bible today, just put up your hand, because we are going to be trying to make the way all the way through the 10 plagues. So we're going to be going on fast forward a number of times. And so if you, uh, an open Bible is really needed. And if you would like a Bible, just put up your hand and the ushers will, uh, will bring you one. And if you don't have a Bible and you want to keep that one, you are more than welcome to do that. Just uh, for a note, I post discussion questions each week, for, mostly for small groups, but if you want to use those as well. It's always in the community group section of our website, and I posted, I kind of separated out the plagues. The first five, the plagues begin and then the plagues continue. And so if you want to see those or your group is following along with that, that's where you can find them on our website. Well, let's begin with the Exodus chapter 7. We're going to begin at verse 8 and read to the end of this chapter. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians, and they also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has sent me to you to say, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. In their earlier appearance before Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron had challenged Pharaoh with God's message. This is what the Lord says. And Pharaoh, he had dismissed it, and he had made life even harder for the Israelites. 
But now God tells Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh with words and actions. Pharaoh will ask for a miraculous sign to back up what they are saying. And when he does, Aaron throws down his staff before Pharaoh and it becomes a snake. It's interesting, the word in Hebrew here, tanin, is different than the one used earlier when God just did it in chapter 4. This word is used of a great beast, of the creatures of the sea that God did in Genesis chapter 121. So it is probably the idea of a monstrous snake. This is an imposing one. So Pharaoh, in response, calls in his experts. And they also did the same thing by their secret arts. Maybe with a, take that, Moses. Some people are surprised at their ability to, to do this, to duplicate the, the sign But these were masters of the occult. That's why they were in Pharaoh's court. And yet, however surprised Moses and Aaron may have been to see Pharaoh's magicians copy the sign that God had given them, imagine how surprised the magicians and Pharaoh must have been when Aaron's staff slithered over and swallowed up all of theirs. Now, I don't think Pharaoh saw that coming. Given the importance of the serpents to Egypt, this was a strategically chosen sign. Pharaoh's headdress was made to look like a cobra and had a little one on his headdress as well. Snakes and serpents, they were one of the most formidable, they were, uh, you know, a formidable creature. And they thought that they had that power and that symbolism of that. And so to have this sign That's like, that's our sign, they would have thought. And yet, also, they understood that a staff or a scepter, that was the symbol of power. And then to have this shepherd's staff swallow up all of that of Pharaoh's officials, of the power in Pharaoh's court, the symbolism could not be have lost on them. This is not a plague per se, but it is a sign, a preview of what would follow. For indeed, the word swallow will be used again when the, uh, when the Egyptian army is swallowed up at the end by the Great Sea, by the, by the Red Sea. And so, uh, this is not a plague, but it is a symbol. And so, I'm gonna, I've kind of made up a chart, if you can put that up there for us. And, uh, and so we will see kind of a pattern at work. And there's a basic pattern, but then there's variations and strategic developments that, that happen along the way. And so that's why I'm trying to cover them all today to get this grand scope of what's going on. And the basic issue here is, who is Israel's rightful master? Pharaoh thought that they were his people. God says, no, those are my people. And the contest that follows between them is fought out in in open combat in the public arena with not only all of the Egyptians, but the world will hear how this contest goes if it goes uh, not according to Pharaoh's plan. And the word plagues in Hebrew, interesting word, megapa, it's literally strikes or blows. And it's often blows capable of causing death. This is a fight to the death. Well, let's begin with the, with the first, the plague, water to blood. 
Take note of the pattern. We're not sure whether there's a warning here. I think it was probably implicit. And Pharaoh's, do his officials able to copy it? Yes. Is there a distinction between, you know, the Egyptians and Israel? Uh, We're not told explicitly yet. And Pharaoh's response, well, not surprising. Not listen. Why this first plague? Is there something significant about changing the waters of the Nile into blood? as the first act of judgment on Egypt. Well, you may remember back in chapter 1, Pharaoh's command to throw every Hebrew boy that is born into the Nile, to use this instrument of life to cause death. And, uh, and the, the greatness of Egypt's civilization was totally dependent on the life-giving waters. You look at a satellite image and you can see exactly where it is. Green, otherwise it is desert, wherever the Nile does not flow. And striking the Nile was to strike at the very heart of their strength and vitality. Kind of the 9-11, like the 9-11 tack on the World Trade Centers, strategically chosen, right, at the economic center. And the Nile was also personified and worshipped as a god in Egypt. Hapi was the god. And therefore, it actually also is the first of many attacks on the gods of Egypt. These are strategic plagues, or blows, if you will. Well, the second plague, frogs. Well, the new element here is that Moses explicitly warns Pharaoh first in chapter 8, verse 2. If you refuse, this plague and the next ones that follow, they will all affect the animal kingdom. And the animal kingdom in Genesis, when God created the animal kingdom, it said that they would swarm and team and fill. Well, they're going to swarm and team and fill, but they are going to overwhelm and create chaos In the ideal pattern of creation, humanity is to have dominion, stewardship over the animal kingdom. The Egyptian god Hecate is depicted in Egyptian art with the head of a frog. Okay? You can see that. Put that on the slide, please. There we go. You can see that. And the Egyptian, uh, and here God will do kind of a reversal allowing the forces of chaos to be unleashed against Pharaoh and his gods to see, can you really control the forces of nature? Can your god, god, uh, you know, Egyptian goddess Hecate, you know, control the frogs? And the plague of frogs from the Nile would be yet another fitting attack on the gods. And retribution to Pharaoh for attempting to use the Nile to exterminate the Israelites. And this plague it would cause the spread of disease. In this plague, we see Pharaoh's first sign of weakness. He begins to say, not only my people, but also in verse 8, he says, and your people. Uh, He's beginning to distinguish. And Pharaoh's experts, oh, they can mimic the plague. They can make it even worse. That's really helpful, isn't it? But they can't undo it. Only God can, and and in verse 9, chapter 8, verse 9, he gives Pharaoh the honor, the honor of when it will stop. We were discussing this in our small group, and somebody thought, like, why didn't he say, stop it now? That wouldn't have looked very good, would it, to see Pharaoh panicking a little bit. Oh, why not tomorrow? 
right? I don't know. Probably doesn't want to look weak. And yet you think the smell of death was everywhere. Another foreshadowing of, of what would happen in, in chapter 15. Well, the effect on Pharaoh. Surprise, surprise. Pharaoh hardens his heart. There's two words that are used for hardening. Two main ones. There's actually three, but two main ones. Uh, the word used here in Hebrew, kavad, it, it's the word for heavy. Sometimes it's also for glory, but it is very weighty. And so Pharaoh's heart here is basically, we'd say, it's unmovable. It is so heavy. And in, in Egypt, some of the uh, images that they have is of a, a scale and the balance. And in the afterlife, they would be weighed, and there was a feather on one side, and then the heart of the Pharaoh or the person would be put on the other side. And if it was heavy, that was not a good thing. You were under judgment. And so it's probably that at work here as well. The next plague, the gnats, there's a, there's a new development here. In verse 18, you'll notice that the magicians are not able to replicate this one. And in fact, look at their response in chapter 8, verse 19. Um, they say, the magician said to Pharaoh, uh, this is the finger of God. It's got his fingerprints. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. The word for hard here, hazak, it means stubborn, immovable. Positively, it means if you have made a, God has made a firm decision, he will not change it. But negatively, when your heart should be changing and you are digging in your heels, that is a very bad and dangerous thing. Well, this, the climax of this first cycle are three waves of ever-increasing judgment. And it is showing that God, the God of Israel, is the God of all nature. Not, not uh, you know, the uh, Egyptians' gods. And I was thinking they're beginning to see more about Pharaoh and said, like, who's this God? I don't know anything about him. And now he's beginning to see things that are amazing. Um, couldn't help, I, I, like, uh, I was reminded of the tricycle kid in the original Incredibles movie. Remember the... Uh, Mr. Incredible comes home, he's had a little bit of a frustrating day, and he gets really angry, and he grabs his car, and he picks it up over his head, and he's going to smash it, and then he sees this little neighbor kid on his tricycle seeing him, and the bubble that he's got, it bursts on his face, and Mr. Incredible just puts it down. But the little tricycle kid will show up at a few times. He wants to see some more incredible things. He's realizing there's more to his neighbor than he realized, and there's more to this God in Israel than they could have ever realized. And yet Pharaoh's heart was hard. He would not listen, just as the Lord had said. And the heart, just a note here. In Hebrew, the heart, in our culture, the heart is usually the place of the emotions. That's a, but in Hebrew, the heart is the organ that is able to hear from and respond to God. So, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, I believe it is, when King Solomon, God says, what would you like? Name it. And Pharaoh says, give your servant a discerning heart. Literally in Hebrew, it's a listening heart. It is Solomon. Oh no, thank you for correcting me there. Heresy coming here. Solomon, yes. Solomon, he says, give me a listening, a discerning heart. Okay? 
that this ability, just as we have ears to be able to hear one another, the heart is that capacity to hear from God and to respond. It's also the place of the will and commitment. And Pharaoh's heart, it is hard, it is impervious. The very opposite, it is not a listening heart like Solomon prayed for. Well, we come to the fourth plague. It's the next series, the plague of flies. Where does the plague come from? We've seen one come from the water. We've seen them come from the land, and now they come from the air, right? And there's a warning given again, if you do not let my people go. And it's the first plague here to make a clear, explicit distinction between your people and my people. It may have been there at work before, but it is, we know for sure, for sure here, it is explicit. And it is a distinction that is maintained through the next plagues. It's not explicitly mentioned in the locust plague, but probably continued. And there is an increase in the plague's destructiveness. The word ruined is used in verse 24. It's the same word used again in chapter 12, verse 23, of the angel of death, the destroyer that will come. And so it is already a foreshadowing. If you continue in this, uh, you know, Israel, I mean, Egypt is ruined, but it will ultimately be destroyed. The word has that range of meaning. And it is a foreshadowing of what is to come. And Pharaoh's response, this is the first of Pharaoh's three attempts to negotiate his way out of this by offering what may appear to be quite reasonable counter-proposals. You know, um, in verse, go, go sacrifice to your God here in the land. Or, or, or not that far away. So, you know, he's trying to negotiate. And Moses, he says, that would not be right. It's unacceptable. And some have wondered, you know, how could you be so hard in this? But culturally, the Egyptians, the Israelites would be sacrificing many of the animals that the Egyptians found sacred. It's like if you go to India, where the cows are sacred, and I wouldn't want to try it, but, you know, I grew up on a cattle farm. They weren't sacred. They were worth money, but they weren't sacred. But you sacrifice, start sacrificing cows in India, you will get a backlash really badly, right? And notice again God's power to stop the plague. To stop the plague. Well, the fifth plague is now on livestock. And he is warned in verse 3 of a terrible plague. There is escalation taking plan, place. And the hand of the Lord is the, is the language that is used. That is powerful language in the Bible and of that day of mighty acts of God in judgment. Not a finger of God. This is the mighty hand of God. And it is the first plague directly causing death of livestock. It's interesting, the word livestock in Hebrew, mikne, it's, uh, it's used of large animals, but it's also the word used for wealth. So it's saying this is how they also measured wealth. If you had livestock, cattle, large animals, these were wealth in, the, in that day. And so there is an escalation happening in the economic impact. And it is also an attack on the Egyptian sky and mother goddess, Hathor. 
who was depicted in their time as a cow, or most of their gods had the head of an animal and, and a cow. Well, we move then to the, the, the boils. This is the first real demonstration to the Egyptians that their own very lives are in danger and that the plagues are moving closer and closer to the center of power itself, to the, to the Egyptian court. And the skin disease, uh, the word used elsewhere, we know this was very painful. But for the Egyptians, it also caused ritual impurity. And so their God not only, you know, was a kind of a slight to their God, they couldn't even go into their God's presence because they were afflicted with this skin disease. And Pharaoh's heart, this is the first, first time in the sixth plague that it explicitly says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he made it heavier since judgment that is coming. Nine times Pharaoh is said to have hardened his heart, and there will be nine times that it says that God did. And I think it's, it's saying if you continually disregard God, then anything that God d does, the response to it will be to harden your heart even more. And it will be uh, a path that leads to death. The seventh plague, hail. It's the longest and most intense so far. In chapter 9, verse 14, he says it'll bring the full force. And it is on men and animals. And the narrative is reaching a higher plateau or level of targeted devastation. Targeted because God offers a specific way of escape to distinguish between the Egyptian believers and unbelievers. It says it in verse uh, chapter 9, verse 19. Give an order to bring in your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because of the hail that will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. And those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. There comes at a point when God is speaking to us where action is required. Are we going to exercise faith or not? Or are we going to say, nobody's going to tell me what to do no matter what? Well, there is a destruction of major food supply that happens. And some may wonder, there's livestock again here. Weren't all the livestock wiped out? Either all doesn't necessarily mean every last one, or those with money, of course, they're going to go and purchase more livestock to begin to replace the ones that they have. And God is going to put an end to that as well. Even the trees are just shredded. I can remember when I was a kid, the worst hailstorm we ever had. It was huge winds and hail, but I remember that the corn was almost ready out in the fields, and we had hail. The, the yard was just was in Manitoba on the farm. It was just white, but the size of hailstones afterwards, we picked up some of them, played a lot of baseball. They weren't quite as big as a softball, but they were bigger than a hardball. 
And we thought, nobody's going to believe us. So we took some of those and we put them in the freezer for a while. (laughs) Just to know, here, this is what we picked up afterwards. Windshields, damage to vehicles. But I remember the corn just shredded. Every leaf was off the corn. You could just still see the corn cobs that weren't quite filled out on there. Just devastation. And just a window of how bad that must have been. And the lasting effect. Well, God is overpowering the Egyptian wind and storm god Seth, and the crop god Isis and Min. And he's actually doing it at the very same time that the Egyptians at this time, given where they were in the agricultural crop cycle, they would have been holding a coming out party for these gods. And you think about that, okay, so it's festival time, and now talk about ruining a party. God sends the storm that utterly undoes all of the work of their gods. Well, now we come to the locust, plague eight. Notice the purpose statement in the first two verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell your children And grandchildren, how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. God is intending these stories of faith to be passed on. To be passed on. And I think we also have experiences in life of of God's power, God's deliverance, God's faithfulness that need to be passed on. This is not just... This is, you know, that should not just be all the people at that time, but has an ongoing and lasting effect. Now, by now, in verse 7, we see that everyone seems to get it except for for one person. In chapter 10, verse 7, Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man, that is Moses, be a snare to us? Because they couldn't say, How long will you be a snare to us? Uh, Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? And yet, what does Pharaoh do? I mean, he hardens. Just impervious to change. There is the destruction taking place now of the rest of the crops. It says in verse 15, The locust devoured all that was left after the hail. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all of the land of Egypt. I remember as a kid as well, one year, the pasture land all got eaten up by grasshoppers. You would walk out in the field and it would just be like the parting would happen just. And I remember as a kid as well, that gave me an insight into, wow, the destructive power. A small swarm of one kilometer of locusts, because they've still had plagues even with the last century, They eat 100 tons of food per day. One square kilometer of locusts can eat 100 tons per day. A medium-sized locust swarm can consume, that would just be a small swarm, a medium-sized could consume 80,000 tons of green vegetation or crops per day. That's enough to feed 100,000 people for a year. That's how much they can eat in one day. And they do just eat everything 
off of every plant and tree in sight. The east wind is sent, and it, and it will be their death. That east wind will be their death in the Red Sea as well. It's a preview, again, a foreshadowing of Pharaoh's final destruction. And although the intensity of the plagues is rise in Pharaoh, he's up to his same old tricks. Although he does say in verse 16, I have sinned. Wow. But as we go along, we realize those are just hollow words. Sometimes, you know, they say there's no atheists in a foxhole. Oh, yes, Lord, begin to pray. And then when it passes, ah, uh, that was just a moment of insanity rather than that was my moment of true sanity. And I should take advantage of it. Well, then we come to the plague of darkness. This plague of darkness is significant given the supreme status of the Egyptian god Amun-Re. And the pharaohs were considered to be the son of Ray. Pharaoh, you're the one. This is really coming home to roost in your, your sweet spot. You know, because he made that claim that he could control, had control. He was the, the son of the sun god. Uh, I was rem reminded of a letter I came across years ago from a, a, a kid who said, we read that Ed Edison in school, that Edison made light, but in Sunday school they said, you did it. I bet he stole your idea. Sincerely, Donna. <laughs> I can imagine a letter. You know, they said that, Pharaoh, you were in charge of the light. And now that light went out, of the sun went out for three days. I think you lied about that. Or, I think the sun has set on the Egyptian empire. That the power of the gods of Egypt and the most powerful god, Ray, is being extinguished. We come finally to the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. Strategically and ultimately chosen because Israel was God's firstborn. That's what they were. And the Egyptians, back at the beginning, they had taken God's precious firstborn and they had tossed them like garbage into the Nile to destroy them. Like the... Uh, like the plague of abortion that consumes so many innocent lives in our day. And God will not allow that to continue. How can he be a good God and allow so many innocent lives to be tossed away like garbage? And the death of the firstborn would become a personal threat to Pharaoh because his son was to take over the empire. And for his son an heir to die. Well, we'll concentrate more on, on that plague and the Passover next week. We want to get to the, to the lessons. First, there's lessons about God. Keep saying that you may know that I am the Lord. You, your children, your grandchildren, and Pharaoh and the Egyptians, that you may know God's power, both the scale of God's power and the scope of God's power. He is the God of all creation. That you might know God's patience and mercy. I love the, the, one of the songs we sang earlier, to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. God will say, I could have wiped you out long ago by now. 
And yet he's giving people an opportunity to change. So many chances to change. And some will along the way. And there will be a group called the rabble that will join the Israelites eventually. Probably made up of people who have come to faith during this time. And it's also they learn about God's faithfulness to keep his promises. Ultimate faithfulness will be in Jesus, our greatest rescuer of all. Who gives a rescue opportunity for every person across the nation's and throughout time on earth. Second lesson about who matters to God. About who matters to God. You see, the Egyptians believed that only important people mattered to their gods. Uh, In his article on the ten plagues entitled Debunking Egyptian Polytheism, Fred Blumenthal points out how as as Exodus 12 12 states, the plague served as God's judgment upon all the gods of Egypt, to whom many of the Egyptians prayed. And the Egyptians believed, though, that the slaves had no personal God. And in fact, in all of the reliefs, Pharaoh will go into the afterlife, and the slaves who were slaves in this life will also be his slaves in the next life. There's never any upgrade from that, because the slaves, they don't even have a God of their own. And then this Lord, the Lord comes along who cares about the slaves, who cares about the Dalits, the untouchables, the nobodies. And he says, those are my people. They matter to me. Not just black lives matter, they do. Slave lives matter. Dalit lives matter. And the slaves had a God who was looking after them, a powerful and personal God who could and would set them free. This was life-changing good news indeed. And thirdly, a lesson about the deadly effects of pride. Pharaoh is a case study in pride. Has there ever been a time when humanity has made as comprehensive claims to to their own destiny and that of the world as humanity does today. We think of our massive machinery, our our earth-shaping operations that alter huge tracts of land through plowing, mining, deforestation, power dams, redirecting waterways, containing the sea. And we think of even more powerful explosives is there any limit to human power and, its, and our sovereign exercise? Why we can, even decl- we can even remake male and female? Will we, the humanity of today, recognize the signs of our times pointing to God's sovereignty and power? COVID sure shook us, didn't it? But COVID's in the rearview mirror, right? The effects of climate change. Well, we're still kind of worried about that one. Or will we harden our heart and refuse to hear the divine address in powers of dis- and displays in creation? Will we glory in our next scientific, technological, medical, or other invention and say, our magicians, our magicians after all can do the same? Or will we see that that is the way of death? a folly, and that God offers a way to life. Which brings me to my fourth lesson about how to be saved. God is doing that. A, first, acknowledge that the Lord is God. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. The Lord, you can tell me what to do. You are the sovereign one. 
and confess that our pride and folly and our arrogance, that they are killing us. And thirdly, trust in him with our lives and follow his commands. Say, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. I want to invite uh, the worship team to come up, and as they're coming, let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are indeed the almighty God. Sovereign in power, but also you are the personal God who keeps his promises, who cares about the people that nobody else seems to care about. And Lord, in Jesus, you showed us that you came to save each one of us. As we acknowledge that you are indeed the God of all, as we confess the folly of our arrogance and pride, and as we trust in you with our whole lives and commit to following you, Lord, thank you for these moments of sanity when we see that this really is the way to life. Amen. Thank you for leading us in worship. I was thinking maybe some of you came in today thinking there's no way I can see a way out of whatever situation is that I'm in. And I pray that you will go from here. Lord, you will make a way. You will make a way. We've got people available from prayer team. And uh, if you would like prayer, I encourage you uh, just up uh, the front and your right-hand side, take advantage of that. Uh, the rest of you, there's a treat waiting, treats waiting for you outside there. Indian treats, so you can have a taste of India. And uh, as Lois said, if you'd like to donate towards uh, t-shirts that are being made in that factory that we're going to be using, you're, you can do that as well. And also a choir, you can get a treat, okay, and, uh, and then make your way back here for the practice afterwards. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.